How many of you have been to the first two nights of the Creation Evolution Seminar? Okay, those of you that haven't been there, you can redeem yourself. You've missed two, but you can hit two of them this evening. We're having one at 5.15, and we'll have a little snack time, and then the second one will start at 7 o'clock this evening. You don't have anything else to do, so you might as well come and participate. Uh, We'd like to see the whole church full. We've had a lot of empty seats the last few nights, so I had to share with uh, Pastor Close, see, we can fill our church up. Uh, And we want to see it filled tonight as well, too. We've really been blessed. Uh, If you were here last night, you would know what we were talking about when we talk about Chihuahuas, St. Bernard's, and wolves. If you weren't here, you missed out on a lot. If you weren't here the night before, you wouldn't have been able to have held a meteorite in your hand and to look at it and to see it. Or to have a human heart and hold it in your hand as well, too, and begin to see the parts. So you're missing out on some things if you don't show up. We want you to come tonight. We're very privileged to have this morning uh, our, our guest speaker, Dr. Ron Close, who is at Andrews University with the North American Division Evangelism Institute, which trains young pastors in evangelism, how to uh, evangelize in the area. Also, he's with the North American Division Field Secretary. He's a professor of Christian ministry and pastoral theology. Is there anything else? Did I read it all well on the screen? Okay, good. We've been blessed by by his presence here and also with with Tim Standish, and they've been working very well together. I've always wondered how they're going to be able to do two guys up here talking at the same time because, you know, they always have something to say. But they're doing this quite well. They're practicing because in May they're going to be presenting their program via satellite across the world uh, as a preliminary uh, kind of a a setup of of classes to create interest so that later on in the fall when they have an evangelistic series, the net series over the satellite, that more people will be interested. So, Dr. Clase, we're glad that you're here. And since we're having potluck, you can take as much time as you want. Thank you, Pastor Bob. Uh, Good morning, everyone. What a pleasure and privilege to meet with you this morning. Um, I do want to thank those of you who came the last couple of nights. Otherwise, Tim and I would have felt very lonely, but you made us feel good. And every time I come to California, um, in awe of how well you guys do weather. We, uh, I used to live in California. Fifteen years I lived here, uh, mostly in Northern California. You know, that's the other California. And, um, and then moved to Tennessee, so we had too much sun and decided to have more rain and humidity, and we got plenty of that for about 14 years. And now we live in Michigan. Only hardy people live in Michigan. You realize that. So, it's uh, thank you so much for opening your doors to us, because Tim and I have been working hard. In fact, we've been working hard so hard we hardly have any time to eat, to be honest. I, the other day I had to file an extension to my taxes because I didn't have time to do my taxes. That's the first time in I don't know how many decades. I, I think I did that once when I was a young man, um, but that's because I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, nevertheless, we believe these things are important. Uh, m- my personal experience with the archaeology meetings is that a third of those people coming to archaeology will transfer over to a prophecy set of meetings uh, because credibility in the Bible has been established and credibility in the speaker has been established. And because of they say, hey, this is good stuff, I was not interested in prophecy, but I now might be, and so we'll come back. The creation evolution uh, plan uh, has something in mind, you know, something similar in mind. We hope that a number of people that will come to deal with 
uh, the most serious questions that human beings have wrestled with about life and where we came from and, and what is this all about, etc., um, that a number of those people who would never darken the door of your church for a Bible seminar will come back as a result of this sewing seminar, if you will, of making that connection. In my experience in evangelism, I have found that, um, unfortunately, more and more members are busy with their lives. So busy that they don't have time to share with other people. And uh, so our churches are not very evangelistic. I believe that you are actually an exception to the rule. That's what I understand. And uh, because of that, we need to provide more help to churches so that they can do more sewing activities and generate some contacts with other people. So this evening we have a couple of them. Let me just tell you a little bit more about this. Uh, some of you may not know much about this. Uh, the last net that we had was in 2008 with Mark Finley. Mark has done about 10 or 12 nets all over the world, maybe more, about 17 actually, most of them outside of the United States. The last one we did here in the United States or in North America was in 2008. Um, most people do not know me as an evangelist, and uh, I can think of a number of people who are better evangelists than I am, but uh, the, the sermon will tell you why uh, that uh, is where I'm at at this point. At any rate, because of that, the division is putting the largest amount of funds into this project than ever before for a net event, because we had all these pre-net meetings that are very expensive when you uh, broadcast them nationwide. We have a, a, a potential viewership of 20 million people uh, for each of these programs because it's going to be on direct TV, live. So this is, will show up again uh, in March, March 4 to, I mean May, May 4 to 8. What Tim and I are doing, we will be doing better, I, I can assure you that, we will be doing better in three weeks. Um, in, in, we're going to continue working with the graphics and in some of the issues and the transitions. Uh, so if you say, well, I don't need to be there, I don't need to see it, uh, you, you'll, you'll be surprised how much gooder it is. And then um, in September, <clears throat> September 14 to 18, we have a pre-net of five nights, just like in May for creation, regarding archaeology in the Bible. And that will be with my colleague and friend Michael Hazel, who is a well-known archaeologist in, in the church. We've been doing that series for a number of times all over the country. And, and uh, so at least I know what we're doing with that. When creation is a totally new thing. You know, I've been reading a lot in the last few months uh, because I'm not a scientist. And Tim is finding that out. Is Tim here still? I <clears throat> just wanted to have him stand if he was. Um, I believe he was here earlier. Anyway, in uh, September then, 30, we have the month-long prophecy series called Prophecies Decoded. And you can l check all of that by looking at the website. You see that the, at the bottom of the slide, host.prophesiesdecoded.com. And uh, a lot of the information is there. Uh, if you want to be a prayer warrior, we are soliciting uh, prayer warriors. Uh, Ruthie Jacobson, who is leading our prayer warrior coordination, wants to have tens of thousands of prayer warriors in, uh, all throughout the country. If you want to, go to the website and there's a place there to check in. And then you can go to my blog about once a week, I post a new blog. I write about what the needs are, what's going on, what is the latest. So far, for instance, we have about 530 churches, 540 churches signed up for this, um, this whole uh, net event, which is the most we've ever had in history this early. My hope is that we get to about 1,000 by the time October rolls around. So there you see the blog. Prayfornet.blogspot.com The message today is the great transition. I want to thank Pastor Bob for asking me to speak last night. You say, last night? Yeah, well, 
We always have a few sermons up our sleeve, and so here it is. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, as we open the word of God, please reveal yourself to us and speak to our hearts and our minds. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What kind of Christian are you? What kind of Christian are you? Are you a busy Christian? Are you a happy Christian? Are you a sad Christian? Are you a Christian that ignores other people? What kind of a Christian are you? Are you a Christian with a smile? Or are you a Christian of the other kind? A skeptic, a a man who uh, resisted every attempt to become a Christian was once asked why he was not, it was so logical for him to become a Christian, why wouldn't he give in and become a Christian? And he answered by saying, Christians are like a man with a headache. He cannot get rid of his head, but it hurts him to keep it. In other words, what he had seen is Christians that were not very happy. You know how it is when you have a headache? You'd like to chop it off, but that's not a good idea. And so you live with the pain, and everything else around you becomes painful. Do we give the same impression to others sometimes? I know I have. I know I have. But you know, you and I are in good company. Because the disciples of Jesus Christ, Jesus handpicked each of them, at least 11 of them, The disciples were also a bunch that was not very happy a number of times. They were jealous. There was gossiping going on. There was anger demonstrated. You know, those Samaritans, why didn't they open their doors for us? Should we pray for heaven to send down fire and burn them up? Now, that's not very Christian-like, is it? So, if that is the way they were, how did they become the where they became? That's the big question. Let's read about it in Acts chapter 5. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. We're going to read the whole section. So, do open your Bible, because we'll be reading for a few minutes. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them, however, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even even carried the sick out in the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on one of them. Verse 16. Also the people from the cities of the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick, or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. But the high priest rose up, along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid their hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the the gates of the prison and taken them out, he said... Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and the associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But when the officers who came did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But we, when we had opened up, when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. I'm reading from the NASB, verse 25. But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. 
Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. You see, this is interesting, because just a few weeks ago he had said, I do not know the man. You see the radical transformation in that disciple. The God of our fathers, he continued to speak, raised up Jesus whom you put up, you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one to whom, one whom God exalted to his right hand as the prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put them outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up and claiming to be somebody and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Or else you may be found fighting against God. They took his advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. And ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then released them. So they went, they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing. Now they just were flogged. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, you tell me that is not a radical transformation from saying, boy, I don't, you know, I, you know, Jesus, I will go to prison and to death with you. But when, when the rubber meets the road, he just backs out, says, oh, I don't know this man, to saying, yes, whatever, what, whatever, you know, we cannot deny what we have seen and heard. We are going to speak on behalf of Jesus because uh, we rather obey God than man. This is a remarkable transformation. This is a remarkable, this is a human being, just like you and me, in a remarkable transformation. That is what took place among the disciples. From denying the Savior to proclaim, proclaiming the Savior. Before the cross, there was jealousy by the disciples. After the cross, there was jealousy by the Sadducees. Before the cross, they were gripped with fear. That's why they went to the upper room after the cross. They were thrown in jail, fearless. They said, there's no problem. Before the cross, they were scattered and fled the mob. After the cross, they were freed. They went to the crowds to preach. The very crowds they feared before. Before the cross, they were hiding away. After the cross, they faced the Sanhedrin. The top-notch, intimidating 70 group of Sadducees and Pharisees who would bring fear upon anyone. Before the cross, Peter denied the Savior after him. After the cross, he testified about the Savior. Before the cross, Peter was afraid of a servant girl. After the cross, Peter was unafraid of the most powerful man in the city. Before the cross, Peter denies boldly Jesus' name. After the cross, Peter speaks boldly in Jesus' name. 
Before the cross, there was a decision to kill Jesus. After the cross, there was a decision to kill them. Before the cross, the intervention by Pilate failed. But after the cross, the intervention by Gamaliel succeeded. Before the cross, Jesus was flogged and killed. After the cross, the disciples are flogged and freed. Before the cross, they were ashamed of Jesus' name. After the cross, they rejoiced for suffering in his name. Before the cross, they kept hiding. After the cross, they kept preaching. And that shows some of the radical change that took place in the disciples. And what I want us to explore this today is why. What brought this about? Whatever happened to them and can it happen to us? What would account for this amazing transformation? Is it conversion? Well, they were converted already. What is it? Is it understanding his purposes, Christ's purposes? Well, they have been with him for three and a half years. They probably would have understood much of what Christ's purposes were about. What about the Holy Spirit? Well, yes, sir. And the love for the cause of Christ? Yes. All of these things probably contributed. But is it really the precise reason why this great transformation took place? That's why we go to the Bible to study that, to understand that. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, that Thursday night, one day before his crucifixion, we find this statement while he was having supper with his disciples. These things I have spoken to you so my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. In other words, the joy of the disciples was there. It existed there, but it wasn't full. It wasn't complete. It was, I don't know if that meant that it was um, up and down, it was temporary, it was unsatisfying, but the point is, Jesus says, what I have been teaching you is so that your joy may be full. Your joy. My joy in you. In fact, in John chapter 16, if you have your Bibles, please turn to John 16. We'll read four verses there. Five verses there. That very night, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into what? Joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the, to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that the child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief, joy, grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Notice the times that Jesus is emphasizing joy at a time when they were depressed because they had heard Jesus say, Wordly, I'm leaving, and they're going to kill me. Of course, he had been saying that for six months, but they had never really processed that continues to say in verse 23, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, He will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Isn't, isn't Jesus marvelous? Think about this. Jesus is hours away from being totally left behind by his father. Because of the burden of sin, the chasm is unbridgeable. Jesus is going to experience the equivalent of the second death. In other words, he will feel every ounce of what it will be like to be lost forever for mankind. And yet, even though he, he longs, his heart longs for sympathy and for love, and for pity from others, what he is thinking is about how they could have joy. That is our God. That is the kind of God you and I serve. Ask that your joy will be complete, he says to them. Well, later on, when he goes to the Mount of Olives, he prays away from the disciples, and he has this intercessory prayer. 
And it says there in John 17, 13, Now I come to you in these things, your word, I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Now, none of these verses tell us exactly what that joy is. But they are telling us that this is a very important agenda item in Jesus' mind for the sake of his disciples, ergo for the sake of his church, even today. Wouldn't you like to have Jesus' joy in your life? I mean, think about this. Jesus, Jesus was always with a sunny attitude. He always trusted God. He always believed that with God all things were possible. He was always willing and yielded and happy and his default mechanism was to be a blessing to other people instead of thinking of himself. Wouldn't you like to be like that? I would. That is having the joy of the Master in you, right? How? That's the question. You know, Jesus, in the parable of the talents, he says, enter. He uses that. He says, enter into the joy of your master. So that is possible for us to enter into that joy. How does that happen? What is this joy of Jesus which he wishes to impart to you and the rest of his followers? What is it? I'm glad you came to church this morning. Luke 15 has three parables that give the answer to that question. And the three parables all are all about the same thing. They're about the lost. In the first case, we have the parable of the lost sheep. And the second, the parable of the lost coin, and then the lost sons, better known as the prodigal. In the parable of the lost sheep, what we find is that the shepherd insists in going out there until he finds the sheep. Verse 4. Until he finds it. In other words, it's not until we run out of time or we run out of resources. It's until he finds the sheep. Nothing will stop him except finding the lost sheep. What happens? He brings that sheep back on his shoulders and he cries out to the entire village, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep. That finding to him is more important than the 99 he didn't need to find. In the parable of the lost coin, we have a woman who lost one very important coin, one out of ten, part of her dowry, part of who she really was. Searches the whole house, up and up, everywhere until she finds. She will not stop until she finds the lost coin. And when she finds it, what does the Bible say? She gathers all the women in town and she says, Rejoice with me, I have found my coin. With the lost sons, because really it's a parable of the lost, you have two sons that are lost. One is lost in the house, the other one is lost outside of the house. But the parable focuses first on the prodigal, the one that is lost by leaving the house. He leaves because he doesn't want to be part of his father's uh, work ethic and squanders the resources his father gave him until he has nothing and he is worse than even pigs, longing to eat the pig's food for a Jew that is utter, 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 and more than utter, humiliation. Most people believe that it is at this juncture when he's hungry and miserable and depressed that he decides to go back to his father's house. But that is not what the Bible says if you read it carefully. He says, how many, he's thinking, musing to himself, how many of my father's hired help have everything based on my father's love for them. Now, this is a very interesting thing because servants have some rights. Slaves even have some privileges. At least they eat and they have a place to live. Hired men, hired hirelings didn't have any rights whatsoever. They were paid by the hour. They were dismissed at will. And this son says, my father treats these nobodies 
like if they were really, really special people. If he treats them that way, I am going to count on the fact that he is going to forgive me. I'm going to count on the fact that he loves them, he loves me. I hadn't really been thinking about my father, but now I do. And I recognize my father's love, and I am going back to him. And so that is what brings him back. And the, the encounter is a beautiful one that has been expressed in artistry for the last 2,000 years all over the place. And what does the father say? Rejoice with me. I have found my son. This son of mine was dead and now is alive. The joy of Jesus is seeing men and women, sons and daughters, come home. That is the joy of Jesus. That is the biblical definition of the joy of Jesus. That is the one thing Jesus said He wants to give to us. I give you my joy. I want your joy to be complete. And that joy has nothing to do with entertainment or leisure or even vacation for that matter. That joy has nothing to do with making more money or being successful at work. That joy has nothing to do with uh, achieving good Helpful relationships with other people. All of those things are good. But they are not the joy of Jesus. The joy of Jesus is leading others to Him. That is what gives you joy. That is what will make your joy complete. That is what fills you up. I remember when I was a pastor in California, in Northern California, sometimes after I would have a Bible study, I remember distinctly several times I would have a Bible study with people, difficult things, and life came through. And people made decisions, and they surrendered, and they, they surrendered to God. And I would go home sometimes late at night, my wife would, would say, you're hungry, you want to eat. I hadn't eaten since this morning. I, and I sincerely would say, no, I'm full already. I am so happy. This is what God did with this person or that person or this family. You could not believe it. And all I did that evening is just sit down and tell her all about it. The joy of Jesus is more than food. Here's what Ellen White says. What is the joy of our Lord? It is the joy of seeing souls for whom Christ died redeemed in the kingdom of glory. Those who enter into the joys of their Lord will have the blessed satisfaction of seeing souls saved in the mansions of God through their instrumentality. That's you and me. Their instrumentality. This is God using us as tools. These souls will be as stars in the crown of their rejoicing. And that's an echo of one of Pauline's, uh, Paul's, Paul's statements. So, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? If soul winning made Jesus really happy, and if having Jesus' joy will make us happy, then bringing people to Jesus will give us true joy. That is the secret of success, of joyful happiness. And here's the bottom line then. Remember this. This is your message today. Fulfilling the Great Commission. The Great Commission is reaching out to others. Right? Making disciples. Will achieve the great transition to our great transformation. Fulfilling the Great Commission will achieve the great transition to our great transformation. Many people come to me sometimes and say, you know, I don't know how to give a Bible study. I don't know how to give out, pass out tracts. I don't know how to talk with somebody about God. I mean, I'm just not there. That's not my gift. The Bible says that every Christian is supposed to witness. The word witness simply means to share what you have seen and heard firsthand. Think of a witness, witness stand. 
If you were to say something that you didn't hear firsthand, what would the opposing counsel say? Hearsay, your honor. In other words, it's not, it's not admissible. Strike that out. A witness is simply somebody who, I saw this, this is what I'm telling you. In other words, you don't need a special gift. There is no such a thing as the gift of witnessing in the New Testament. The witness is simply somebody who knows something about Jesus. And if something about Jesus is real in your life, it will come out. You know, baseball season has started. And people around water coolers are talking about baseball and games. What are they doing? They are witnessing. Why? Because they... They are interested in something. When you're interested in something, it comes out of you. If you do well, if a young person does aces an exam that they didn't expect to ace, what's going to happen? Are they going to keep it to themselves? Uh-uh. They're going to witness about it. If you're miserable, if you're having a really rough time, even if you have the ethic of saying, I'm not going to bother anybody about it, your body language is, language witnesses to the fact that you are miserable. Right? Fulfilling the Great Commission will achieve the great transition to our great transformation. In Hebrews 12 we find this text. Jesus, for the joy, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. The joy set before Him. That is what allowed Jesus to put up with the misery of the cross. It was set before him. The joy was set before him. That was to him the bridge that allowed him to, per, to go right through the misery. And, the, and the, the, the separation from his father. What was that? Well, here it is. A statement in Desire of Ages. The powers of good and evil waited to see what answer would come to Christ's thrice repeated prayer. You know, in Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me. Angels had longed to bring relief to the divine sufferer. But this might not be. No way of escape was found for the Son of God. In this awful crisis, the heavens opened, the light shone forth amid the stormy darkness and the crisis hour, and the mighty angel who stands in God's presence came to the side of Christ. The angel came not to take the cup from Christ's hand, but to strengthen him to drink it. He pointed him to the open heavens, telling him of the souls that would be saved as the result of his sufferings. He told them that he would see of the travail of his soul an echo of Isaiah 53 and be satisfied for he would see a multitude of the human race saved, eternally saved. So what was said before Jesus? The number of people that could be saved if he went through this great sacrifice. See, what happens is this. Evangelism, sharing your faith with others, being a blessing to other people, is actually hard work. But like uh, the slogan of the Peace Corps, it is the hardest job you'll ever love. It is hard work, you know why? Because people refuse to be saved, or people refuse to look at God, or people are so overwhelmed by other issues... And you long to, for them to open their eyes, but, but you can't force that. It's like, it's like having a whole bunch of teenagers, you know? And saying, don't you get it? This is really not the way life is. But you'll just have to wait until they experience that and they open their eyes. It is hard, but it is the greatest thing you'll ever do in your life. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting, the Bible says. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's like farming. Tough work. You've got to be out there early in the morning, every out there, you know, regardless of the weather. You, you're, you're doing routine work. You say, you know, I don't see the results until the harvest. And then the harvest, you see the results. Weeping may last for a night, the Bible says, but joy comes in the morning. Here's Johnny Barnes. I met this man 
in Bermuda. How many of you have been to Bermuda? Few of you have. If you have been to Bermuda, you probably have met Johnny Barnes or at least have heard of Johnny Barnes. Here it is. Johnny Barnes is the most is the best known person in the island. He is better known than the Queen, you know, this is a protectorate of the British uh, Crown, Bermuda is. He is better known than the Governor General. He is better known than any of the CEOs that dot the entire island, you know, because it's a whole bunch of bank, banks and insurance, you know, there's a lot of money in that island. Why do they know him? Because Johnny Barnes goes every morning at five o'clock in the morning to the busiest intersection in the island, you know, not much to say for it because there's only one section about half a mile long that has two, it, you know, two lanes each way. But almost everybody has to go through there to go to work. So he goes there, perches himself there from five o'clock in the morning till ten o'clock in the morning every single day, rain or shine. He's been doing that for about 35 years. One day, um, he wasn't there. And everybody in the island got alarmed. In fact, the, the, the lead story of the newspaper was a question mark. Where is John? Where is Johnny? And uh, when they found out he had been taken to the hospital because he had gotten sick, one of the CEOs of the bank said, we're going to take care of all his, biz, uh, his, his bills. Uh, he is more of an asset than anybody else or any institution on this island. We cannot allow this man to die. He's too Why is he so important? Because what he does in the morning is simply the simplest things. He tells people as they go by, he tells, God bless you. I love you. I love you. God bless you. Blows kisses at them. And you say, you've got to be kidding me. What comes? That's exactly what he does. And he's genuine about it. When I met with him, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, do you know what? Jesus really is coming soon. And his eyes are just so transparent. And he's just, he just, you, you could see the man loves God and loves people. Gets up at three o'clock in the morning, spends two hours with the Lord Jesus, and then gets out to be a blessing to others in a simple way. In fact, this Seventh-day Adventist is so famous that he's been written about, he's been written up all over the world. They made a monument about him. This is the only monument in the island. There's no monument to Queen Elizabeth II. But there is one about him because he really means something to that place. Listen to what the London Telegraph wrote ten years ago. The Telegraph is one of the big papers like LA Times, you know. Johnny Barnes, a devout Seventh-day Adventist, is the face of Bermuda. Its most definitive icon is most photographed tourist attraction. And then interviewing him, you know, they're exerting uh, quotes from him. The good Lord and I have been coming here for 27 years, so that's 37 now. I love you, I love you, beep, beep. It makes them happy. What could be more important? I love you, yes I do. Beep, beep. I talked with a couple of uh, parking attendants in the hotel I was staying at. I said, have you heard of Johnny Barnes? They both laughed. I said, have we heard of Johnny Barnes? Who hasn't heard of Johnny Barnes? He says, tell me, who is he? Oh, he's a blessing to all of us. That's what he is. And he said, one morning... Uh, last year, one morning, I, just, I was feeling rotten. I didn't want to come in to work. But the very thought that I wouldn't get Johnny Barnes greeting me and saying, God bless you and I love you, was enough for me to get up and go to work. Johnny, Johnny, why? It gives me joy. It shows someone cares. It stimulates the blood. It vibrates you. It is a joy, a pleasure. Beep, beep. When the joy of the Lord is in the soul, Ellen White wrote over a hundred years ago, you will not be able to repress it. You will want to tell others of the treasure you have found. You will speak of Jesus and his matchless charms. 
we should devote all to him, we shall become channels of light to others. See, when Jesus is engaged in this, I'm giving you the Great Commission for a blessing to you. Oh yes, of course, the world needs to know about me and I need you to do that. But, you know, I could do it more efficiently with rocks. The truth is, rocks don't need to be blessed, but you do. And that's why I'm giving you that job. And that's why God is speaking to us. That's why He has raised the church. The church is here for one purpose. One purpose, overreaching purpose only. To reach out to others and share with them the God of heaven. For who is our hope, Paul said? Or joy, or crown of exaltation. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. What's Paul saying? He says, we brought you to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are our crown of exaltation. You are our joy. That is what makes our blood run. That is what makes us happy. Regardless, just the fact that you have come to know God. Here's another one. 3 John. 3 and 4, I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is, how you are walking in the truth. This is John speaking. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. No greater joy. This really fills my cup. In Jude 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior. So fulfilling the Great Commission will achieve the great transition. You're, you're struggling with your life. You're, you're not quite as happy as you should be or as you think you need to be. Here's your key. The Great Commission, engage in that Great Commission that will achieve the great transition to your great transformation. Oh, I could tell you story after story after story about <clears throat> evidences of that. In the last few months, some of these people have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ from the ministry that some of my students and I do in, in the country and what joy it is in their souls. They have made tough decisions including the one to join the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the remnant church uh, and cast their lot with the remnants. This is not an easy decision. Uh, a number of people come in and they break through. Why? Because what is overarching to them is the power of God, the love of God. They have found meaning and they said, this is really what God says. I want to be a part of that. And so, people after people, I wish I could tell you the stories, but we don't have the time to tell you the stories. Fulfilling the Great Commission will achieve the great transition to our great transformation. Let me ask you, does Beaumont and this whole area, do they, do they need Jesus? They need Jesus. Who does Jesus have for them? You. You. You are that link to Jesus. You are that link to Jesus. Fulfilling the Great Commission will achieve the great transition to our great transformation. So every time the pastor suggests new ideas about how to reach out to others, every new project... To, to reach out to friends and neighbors. Anything that you're doing that is of an evangelistic nature, do not skip it. Engage in it. Pray for it. Contribute to it. Uh, participate in it. Ask God, Lord, help me be in contact with somebody who doesn't know you so that I can be a difference in their lives. And that will be joy. Enter into the joy of your master. How many of you want to say with me, by God's grace, I want, I want to do that. I want to enter into the joy of his master. God bless you. God bless every one of you. I'm going to hymn number 325. And before we sing... Uh, just one announcement, just immediately following the church service, Pete would like to meet with the deacons and the ushers and any of the men who'd be willing to volunteer to
to help uh, with the ushers with the Bife meetings in May. You, we need to have your names. 325. We'll sing the first and the last verse. May the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ go with you and be with you today and every day as we turn our life over to him. Amen.